When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Part of this lesson, we studied Alma chapter 32, this incredible experiment upon the Word. We talked about the difference between faith and perfect knowledge, and that once the one grows into the other, then faith becomes dormant, and that there needs to be time. That's why patience was brought up so many times. Time for faith to perform its work in changing us. That's the exercise of things, and to become something to really get in shape, exercise can't be a one-time thing. That's why signs don't work, ask Korahor. That's why trees can't just be transplanted. Seeds have to grow. I grew up in LA. I don't think anybody grew anything except probably illegal drugs. But I remember in the first house that we owned, I had a little spot on the side yard where we created some above-ground gardens, those square box gardens they're called. And we planted all kinds of different things, mostly vegetables. I have this vivid memory of getting a little packet of seeds. I think it was broccoli. And I remember dumping them into my hand and looking at them with complete skepticism. I'll admit. I looked at them going, <laughs> yeah, right. See, I don't have a green thumb. I've never grown anything. I mean, I barely know how to even cook anything or bake anything. To me, cakes come out of boxes, and that's cooking. When I see somebody actually pulling out flour, it's like, whoa. This is cooking on an elemental level. So for me, where do vegetables come from? They come from the store. They don't come from the ground. I had no faith in farming, okay? No experience in it. And so looking at this handful of tiny little seeds thinking, there's no way this is actually gonna become something. But I figured I'd done all this work to make the garden. Might as well put them in. So I did, and I ended up loving that little garden. I'd come home from work and just be out there watering or just seeing what had sprouted or grown up at all since the last time. Honestly, as the vegetables started to grow, I thought, I can teach Alma 32 with faith from now on. Seeds really do grow. Totally new experience for me. But it was a leap of faith to start. And it's the faith, even more than the final food, that God is trying to grow. It's the growth, not the greenery, that he's after. That's why he refuses to give those obvious signs. That's why Jesus didn't leap from the Temple Mount to prove his divinity. That's why God is so good at self-restraint, to keep himself from proving every atheist wrong, because it short-circuits the process. It hands out the fruit of the tree of life far too soon after having eaten the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you live forever in your sins. In this case, 
You live forever in your perfect knowledge, but having never developed faith along the way. Rudolf Otto, The Idea of the Holy, that great book that I quoted at the end of Alma chapter 31, he said this, and I love the point he's making. If there is a God, he said, and he believed that there was, but in trying to resurrect the idea of the holy, he did know the skeptical audience that he was trying to convince. If there is a God, and if he chose to reveal himself, he could do it no otherwise than thus. I love what he's saying there. If God's goal is faith, then there needs to be just enough evidence in this experiment to confirm our faith, but not so much evidence from the start to obviate our faith. In other words, we do have a leg to stand on, but not laurels to rest on. This is an exercise after all. There will be measurable results, but they'll have to be spiritually discerned. There will be enlargement and enlightenment, but it will be of your soul and your mind. It will be discernible, but only through the spiritual senses. If there's a God and he wants to reveal himself, if there's a God that wants us to develop faith, then he has to allow that if to exist. He has to carve out space with the third part of the ninth article of faith. Things I have not yet revealed. There has to be room for uncertainties so that faith has a place to go and to grow. That's why life isn't just true. It's why life is real. With real question marks and real concerns and real ambiguities and real messiness. And again, that's not just in the restored gospel. That's not just church history. It's not even just in religion. It's in life. It's in the humanities because we're human. And with God being who God is, and him knowing that we are what we are, he could not do it otherwise than thus. Not enough evidence, and the experiment could never be proven. Too much evidence, and the experiment could never be disproven. In fact, there would never be an experiment. It would just be factual knowledge from the first. There have to be enough exclamation points to confirm what we're learning, but enough question marks to keep our learning alive. God walks that balance beam beautifully. Again, just enough evidence to make faith plausible, but not so much evidence to make faith unnecessary. Amazing how he does this. Now, by the time Alma chapter 33 begins, the sense that Alma is done but the people aren't. He's given this incredible discourse, but for his audience, they're still a little confused about, okay, that's starting to make sense, but can we get down to details? How do I actually start this thing? In verse one, they send forth unto him desiring to know whether they should believe in one God that they might obtain this fruit of which he had spoken or how they should plant the seed, or the word of which he had spoken, which he said must be planted in their hearts, or in what manner they should begin to exercise their faith. You see, they've got all these questions in their mind. They're just kind of throwing a bunch out at him, all of which seem to boil down to, well, how do we start? How do I begin to exercise my faith? Now, Alma's going to answer their question and answer a few unspoken questions along the way. Verse 2, he says to them, Behold, Ye have said that ye could not worship your God because ye are cast out of your synagogues. That's how chapter 32 began. 
He comes back to that. But I need you to know that worship, which is a big part of this planting that I've been talking about, is not confined to a single place. Remember, it's not confined to a single person either. Men, women, and children can all conduct this experiment. Well, here location doesn't matter either. This is like Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And her kind of getting in Christ's face almost saying, we Samaritans say that this is the place to worship. You Jews say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. Well, which one is it? And Jesus basically says, day is coming that neither one of those places will matter. It's not about address. It's about attitude. Forget location. Lifestyle is what the Father is after. So he's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's how we worship more than where. So let me clarify the where really quick so that you stop dwelling on that. He starts quoting a bunch of Old Testament scripture, which we no longer have in our Old Testament, Zenos and Zenic, for example. But here quoting Zenos, he mentions in verse 4, you can pray in the wilderness. In 5, you can pray in the field. In 6, you can pray in the house. In 7, you can pray in the closet. In 9, you can pray in the congregation. And in 10, you can pray even if you've been cast out from that congregation. Sound familiar? Any of these relate to you, Zoramites, that have been cast out of your synagogues? Anywhere you go, you can worship. So don't feel like this experiment is closed off to you. Please don't think that heaven or heavenly father are out of reach. He has not locked you out. But again, it's not where, it's how. So to your question of how do we plant the seed? How do we exercise faith? How do we get this word into our hearts? That's the question. How do I get the word in me so that then I can begin nourishing it so that it will swell and expand and enlighten and become delicious? His answers, we might shrug and say, oh, those are just the primary ones. And unfortunately, when we say primary answers kind of dismissively, we use primary as in, oh, little kids. Aren't there more advanced things to do in the gospel? Well, primary also means fundamental, foundational, as in the primary colors. Red, yellow, blue aren't called that because they're childish. It's because they're foundational. And every other color on the wheel grow out of those primary colors. So what are the primary, foundational, fundamental, keystone answers to how do we get the word planted in our hearts? First place he goes is scripture. That's why he's quoting Zenos and Zenic and Moses. In verse 2, he says, you ought to search the scriptures. If you thought you could only worship in a synagogue, if you thought the scriptures taught you that, you don't get it. You don't understand them. So search the scriptures. That's going to be one important element of planting the seed in your heart. And three, he mentions it. Do you remember to have read what Zenos the prophet of old has said? In verse 12, he asks, do you believe those scriptures which have been written by them of old? And in 14, he says, I would ask if ye have read the scriptures. If ye have, how can ye disbelieve on the Son of God? I've said it a bunch of times in these videos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how the beginnings are supposed to be, with the Word. You want to plant the seed? Start with God's Word. Again, maybe that's a higher gear on your bike. And starting with that on an upward climb is too much to ask. 
well, maybe you need to build up some momentum before you get here. Hopefully that's what these videos or other resources can do to make scripture more understandable, more applicable, more relevant. But sooner or later, the scriptures have to be part of this experiment. There's no way around it, nor would we want there to be. But scripture is only one part of it, one primary answer. The other is prayer, but real prayer. That's part of nourishing the word. That's part of planting the seed. It's communicating with my Father in heaven. It's coming to know him in ways that are far more personal and far more real, far more discernible than the philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Again, those are merely mental acquiescences rather than experiential interactions. And so verse 3, what he finds in the scriptures is the call to prayer. But notice what he says about it. We tend to say our prayers, which is kind of a cop-out for real prayer. The phrase, say prayers, that's not scriptural. Ask Enos about his. Things like soul hungering, raising voice high that it reached the heavens, crying unto God. That's the verb that Zenos uses so often. So from verse 4 through verse 11, what kind of prayer is it? Well, in 3, Alma says, concerning prayer or worship. So that's the first element of prayer. It needs to be worshipful. So often we simply say, oh, here's the four steps. Address Heavenly Father, thank Him for stuff, ask for stuff, and close in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ah, easy. The Lord's Prayer had a few extra elements. For example, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do we hallow God? Do we honor him? Do we worship him in our prayers? Remember, it's not location, woman at the well. It's worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Are our prayers worshipful? Next in four, thou art merciful, O God, for thou hast heard my prayer even when I was in the wilderness. Yea, thou wast merciful when I prayed concerning those who were mine enemies, and thou didst turn them to me. Are our prayers selfless? Are we praying for others, even for our enemies, those who despitefully use us and persecute us? In verse 5, Yea, O God, thou wast merciful unto me when I did cry unto thee in my field, when I did cry unto thee in my prayer, and thou didst hear me. And again, O God, when I did turn to my house, thou didst hear me in my prayer. And when I did turn unto my closet, O Lord, and prayed unto thee, thou didst hear me. So from the field to turning to the house, to turning into the closet. This seems to be a constant prayer. Again, not site-specific, but not even time-specific. Well, at each meal and before I go to bed and when I wake up in the morning. No, just from field to house to closet. Wherever you go, have your hearts drawn out to God. Again, prayer is meant to be relational even more than merely conversational. It's a connection we keep with heaven. It's always remembering him like we promise each week. In verse 8, Thou art merciful unto thy children when they cry unto thee to be heard of thee and not of men, and thou wilt hear them. So different compared to the Ramiumptum, right? Where it was all about being heard and seen of men. So are our prayers humble? Are they focused on God? Is he the one we're talking to? Or are we talking to the crowd? I think sometimes people slip, and hopefully it's just an accident. But sometimes in prayer, they talk about God 
as if they didn't realize they're speaking to God because they focused on him in these prayers. In verse 9, Yea, O God, thou hast been merciful unto me and heard my cries in the midst of thy congregations. Again, beyond location, it's my cries, even in the midst of this large congregation. Are our prayers specific? Are they individual? Or is it just part of the Mass? Can we differentiate a personal prayer from a congregational one? Is my communication with Heavenly Father as individual as I am? In verse 10, Yea, thou hast also heard me when I have been cast out and have been despised by mine enemies. Yea, thou didst hear my cries and wast angry with mine enemies, and thou didst visit them in thine anger with speedy destruction. This is the second time that he's prayed for enemies. The first time the Lord was able to turn those enemies toward the person praying. This time, that didn't happen. But the person left them in the hands of the Lord, left them to God's justice and judgment, not taking it upon themselves. In other words, this is a trusting and resigned prayer, leaving things in the Lord's hands. And finally, in verse 11, that is, hear me because of mine afflictions, that humbles us, and my sincerity, another key factor in our prayer. And it is because of thy son that thou hast been thus merciful unto me. Therefore, I will cry unto thee in all mine afflictions. There's again that constancy. For in thee is my joy. Do we feel that in our prayers? There's the humility, the hallowed be thy name, but also the joy, the thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Rejoicing in God, glorying in him, as both Alma and Ammon are such great examples of. For thou hast turned thy judgments away from me because of thy son. Now, did you catch two elements in that passage from Zenos that kept coming up? One was mercy. Over and over and over in those verses, thou wast merciful when I cried unto you here. Thou wast merciful when I prayed there. Thou art merciful unto thy children. Thou art merciful, O God. I hope that when we pray, we keep in mind God's mercy through it all. It's what gives us faith that answers will come, that help will be forthcoming. And the other phrase that kept coming up, in verse 11 at least, because of thy son. That's how we connect to God in the first place. Christ is our intermediary with him. And so that last phrase in the prayer just might be the most important part. I cringe sometimes to hear people rush through the last line of a prayer as if they were diving for the finish line. I'm almost there. And so in the name of Jesus Christ becomes a one-syllable word. Rush through to get to the amen and I'm done. Off the hook. Oh, if there's any time to slow down and savor the words, it's that ending. That's what allows us to communicate with a father that the fall has cut us off from. God can be merciful. All that talk of mercy. He can be merciful because of the son. He can turn away his judgments. We don't deserve any of the things we're asking for. We're unprofitable servants, right? No matter how hard we try to work. We can enslave ourselves, but we'll never pay back the king for our many murders. It's because of the son that he can turn away his judgments. It's because of the son that he can be merciful. He reiterates it in verse 13. 
Thou hast turned away thy judgments because of thy son. That's Alma's focal point. It's not just, you ought to search the scriptures and you ought to pray. No, it's, you ought to search the scriptures because, verse 14, how can you disbelieve on the Son of God if you've read them? You ought to pray, not just to pray, but prayer is what allows us to come to know the Father and the Son as we pray to the one in the name of the other. Prayer and scripture study are not the ends, but they're the means to the greatest end, which is coming to know God and his only begotten son. That's how you plant the seed. The word is Christ. Plant him in your hearts through sincere, constant, selfless, specific prayer and through diligent, serious scripture study. Focus on Jesus in both instances. Verse 15, Zenos wasn't the only one to teach this. Zenos did too. 16, this is one of the things that he said. Thou art angry, O Lord. Uh Uh-oh, what about all this talk about mercy? Mercy, mercy, because of the Son. Well, 16, interesting twist. Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies, which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy Son. So Zenos is echoing Zenos with the same focal points, a merciful God because of God's Son. And yet the way he puts it is so ironic. What's the one thing that makes God angry? Assuming that he's angry. You catch that twist? You're angry because we don't understand that you're merciful. Maybe he's suggesting we get the God that we assume him to be. You refuse to look at the Son and see the Father's character through the lens of his only begotten. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should receive everlasting life. For the Father sent not the Son to condemn the world, but to save it. Because of thy Son, we can know of a merciful Father. We don't have to fear an angry one. He's only angry if you eliminate his mercy. Because God is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful, he proves those contraries perfectly. Then remove the mercy that comes because of the Son, and what do you have left? Just his justice. A justice which we deserve. A justice that we would fear to the point, as Alma said earlier, of calling down the mountains to fall upon us, to hide us from his face. But when we come to know the sun, we are coaxed out from underneath the mountain. We'll see this in Alma 36 soon. And we will know God for who he is, a merciful and loving and self-sacrificing father because of the sun. So 17, two prophets so far have testified of the son of God. Zenic's case, because the people would not understand his words, they stoned him to death. He stood behind his witness of Jesus with his own life. But that's not all, verse 18. They're not the only ones that have spoken concerning the Son of God. Verse 19, let's add Moses to the list. If by two or three witnesses shall every word be established, let's go with three today. Zenus, Zenic, Moses. Behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness, that whosoever would look upon it might live. And many did look and live. This is the story of Moses and the brazen serpent. 
look to this. Have faith that God can heal you because he will lift his son upon a cross to draw all men to him, as Jesus will say later in 3 Nephi. Verse 20, the bad news. But few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. Remember we saw that back in Alma 12? A hard heart means you receive the lesser portion of the word until you know nothing concerning his mysteries, including the mystery of how can something so simple look and live? Really? Be healed from the bites of these fiery, flying, poisonous serpents because I looked at a brazen serpent on a staff? Those hardened hearts kept them from understanding. It kept others from even trying. Some at least had a desire to believe, and so they began their experiment. Others didn't even have a particle of faith and therefore would not exercise anything, even so much as a neck muscle to turn or an eye muscle to look. As a result, they perished. There were many who were so hardened that they would not look. Therefore, they perished. Talk about stubbornness. You can't even chalk it up to laziness because the thought of exercising is so daunting. It's just look and live. This is an adamant stubbornness of heart he talked about back in chapter 32, right? Being compelled to believe, being compelled to know. Well, they'd have to be compelled to look and they refused to do it. There's something about that obstinance. I remember teaching a student once whose father taught religion and she didn't want to have anything to do with it. And there was a stubbornness. I remember once just laughing to myself, wondering if her dad was a plumber, would she refuse to flush? Is, it, is, it, is she anti-God or is she just anti-dad? And this is dad's life and I don't want to be dad and so forget the whole thing. This, this stubbornness of heart, which is a lack of faith. That's what he says at the end of 20. The reason they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. That's the particle of faith. That's the giving place for a portion of God's word. Just experiment. Try. Verse 21, Oh, my brethren, if you could be healed by merely casting about your eyes that you might be healed, would you not behold quickly? Or would you rather harden your hearts in unbelief and be slothful? There's that word we hinted at back in chapter 32. He that is compelled in all things, the same as a slothful and not a wise servant. What a word, slothful. Just hanging upside down from trees. It takes too much exercise to actually stand on top of the branch. Don't even want to exercise your hands to hold on to the branch. Oh, just a nice curved claw will do. I can just hang here. I can grow moss on my fur because I'm not going to move. Wow, what an animal to be called. Verse 22, if so, woe shall come upon you. If not, then cast about your eyes. Don't look up to the top of a ramiumptum where you're not invited. Look up to God who is inviting all of you to come unto him. Begin to believe in the Son of God. And what's specifically about him? What elements of the word need to be planted? That he will come to redeem his people. That he shall suffer and die to atone for their sins. That he shall rise again from the dead, which shall bring to pass the resurrection. That all men shall stand before him to be judged at the last in judgment day according to their works. So believe in Jesus, in his ministry and mission, his atonement and crucifixion, his resurrection, his judgment. That's the word you need to plant in your hearts. Verse 23. 
And as it beginneth to swell, nourish it. Nourish it by your faith. You'll end up with perfect knowledge of the goodness and reality of the seed. Keep nourishing it by your faith and it will become a tree springing up in you unto everlasting life. See how he's ending 33 the same way he ended 32? This portable, internal tree of life. With that inside you, then, may God grant unto you that your burdens may be light. You have low-hanging branches to hang them all upon. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. These are the Zoramite poor, the ones that constructed the synagogues themselves, the burdened, heavy laden. Come rest in the shade. Lay your burdens at the roots or hang them on the branches, and they will be light through the joy of his Son. He'll forget all about them as you are partaking of fruit that is sweeter and whiter and purer and more delicious than anything you've ever eaten. Even all this can ye do, if ye will. Amen. You just have to want to. It really is that simple. It's not easy. It does take exercise. It's awake and arouse your faculties. It's planting and digging and dunging and nourishing. But it really is that simple. A testimony is yours for the asking. But do you really want one? Then look, live, experiment, have an eye of faith, looking forward to the fruit of the life that you are living. Now, as we saw earlier in Alma, this beautiful tag team companionship between Alma and Amulek, we see that as we move into chapter 34. As Alma has taught 32 and 33, and now Amulek gives second witness. Verse 1, Alma sits down, and Amulek stands and begins to teach. And he says in verse 2, My brethren, I think it is impossible that ye should be ignorant of the things which have been spoken concerning the coming of Christ, who is taught by us to be the Son of God. Yea, I know that these things were taught unto you bountifully before your dissension from among us. Remember, these are the Zoramites. They were dissenters from the Nephites. They neglected the practices and performances of the church. Inactivity, right? This is a mission of reactivation, not of conversion. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's had to be taught things they did not know about the great spirit and the promised son of God. But for these Zoramites, that's impossible that you don't know these things. I know you know them. And I can say that. I'm Amulek. I knew but would not know. I was taught bountifully to, even in Ammonihah. But you Zoramites, you know. I hope, by the way, that those who have grown up in an LDS home or those who have grown up as members of the church, I hope that we can say it's impossible that you wouldn't know about Jesus, that you wouldn't understand the mercy of Heavenly Father. I meet so many people in the church that grew up in the church, but who are still ignorant of the goodness of God because they've only heard God's justice or anger sounding in their ears. Ignorant of the grace of Christ, even though it is taught bountifully to us. Read the Book of Mormon. How can you disbelieve in the merciful Son of God? Pray. How can you not know of God's love for you? Listen to prophets and apostles. And for anyone who teaches or serves or leads or speaks, 
in every sacrament meeting talk, in every class lesson, in every family scripture study, I hope we are making it impossible for our children, for our youth, for the people that we're serving. I hope we're making it impossible for them to be ignorant of the goodness of God. By the way we speak of him, by the way we teach of him, by the way we serve in his name, if everything we do is in the name of the Son and because of the Son, I hope we are teaching bountifully of his goodness so that it is impossible for people to be ignorant of that. The next time one of my evangelical pastor friends brings a group of evangelical students to come to Utah to meet the Latter-day Saints, I hope that after their experience here, that it would be impossible for them to be ignorant of our testimonies of Jesus Christ. I hope they go home thinking, I'd always been told that Mormons aren't Christians, but that's impossible based on what I've seen. They believe in him. They talk of him and rejoice in him and speak of him and prophesy of him and write according to their prophecies that their children may know impossible to be ignorant, that we might know the source that we must look to for remission of our sins. May that be taught bountifully and powerfully and deeply enough that even after someone dissents from among us, they'll know that they were leaving Christians behind, not hypocrites, not judgmental, holier-than-thou pseudo-saints, but real Christians. I think Dissension would happen a lot less frequently if that's what they knew they were leaving. Verse 3 and 4, he repeats what his companion had just said. You have desired of my beloved brother, they loved each other, these companions did, that he should make known unto you what you should do because of your afflictions. He hath spoken somewhat unto you to prepare your minds, each companion building off the last. Yea, he hath exhorted you unto faith and to patience. Yea, even that ye would have so much faith as even to plant the word in your hearts that ye may try the experiment of its goodness. And then he drills down to the core of it all. Verse 5. We have beheld that the great question which is in your minds is whether the word be in the Son of God or whether there shall be no Christ. That's what the whole experiment was about. It's about Jesus. Even more than the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith it's about Jesus. I think if we did less in our attempts to prove the Book of Mormon is true and more to use the Book of Mormon to prove that Jesus is the Christ, people will end up loving the Book of Mormon as a result. But because it was source, not because it was target, because it was means, not because it was end, the point of the experiment is to make Christians of us. Korihor denied that. The people on the Ramiumpton denied that. That was their biggest dissension, was dissenting away from Jesus. Now in 6, my brother has proved unto you in many instances that the word is in Christ unto salvation. What kind of proof did he offer? Scriptural proof, first of all. Verse 7, he called upon Zenus, who taught that the redemption comes through the Son of God. He called upon Zenic, who gave his life for that witness. He called upon Moses and the brazen serpent he made. These three witnesses to prove that these things are true. But let me now give you an added one, a living one. Verse 8, Behold, I will testify unto you of myself, so independent of all these others, that these things are true. This is exactly what Amulek had done back in Ammonihah. 
when Zeezrom and others were scoffing and saying, Alma, who the heck are you? You're only one person. Why do we have to listen to you? Well, here they had more than one. But in both instances, Amulek rises and says, let me add yet one more. A personal living witness that these things are true. Of myself, I'll testify these things are true. Behold, I say unto you, I do know, not just faith anymore for him, it's perfect knowledge, I do know that Christ shall come among the children of men to take upon him the transgressions of his people and that he shall atone for the sins of the world. How do I know? Because the Lord God hath spoken it. That's the source of my testimony. But let me add to my spiritual witness a logical explanation as well. Verse 9, it is expedient. It has to be this way. This is the logic. It is expedient that an atonement should be made. For according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made. Or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. There's no other way around it. As Paul taught, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yea, all are hardened. Yea, all are fallen. All are lost. And they must Perish, except it be through the atonement which it is expedient should be made. The reality of the fall necessitates the reality of the atonement. Even skeptics have sometimes joked that the one Christian doctrine that does have empirical evidence is the fall. Human depravity. Sad that our lives give evidence to that. Well, may our lives also give evidence of the reality of the atonement. If there's one, logic requires that there be another. If this is the problem, there better be a solution. That's what all religions are after. How do you solve the problem of sin and death? They all have their answers. I found none as compelling as that of Christianity. Verse 10, it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice. Yea, not a sacrifice of man. Jesus was more than that. Neither of beast, neither of any manner of fowl. For it shall not be a human sacrifice. Jesus was not solely human either. But it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. And those are some of his names, as he describes in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, 11 and 12, he says something interesting. He says, now there is not any man that can sacrifice his own blood, which will atone for the sins of another. If a man murdereth, behold, will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, nay. The law requireth the life of him who hath murdered. Now, when I was younger, I would read that and go, wait a minute. He, didn't he just kind of explain the atonement? It almost seems like he disproved it right there. Or it kind of made it illogical, at least. The law would never take the brother of a murderer and take his life instead. You'd have to take the life of the murderer. And I remember thinking, but isn't that what Jesus did? He took the place of the murderer and was killed in his stead. Isn't that him switching spots with Barabbas? and by association with all of us? Well, if he was merely a man, just human, then yeah, that wouldn't make sense. That's unjust. But there's something about Christ's divinity, the fact he was infinite and eternal, that makes this so different from merely one man taking the place of another. This is eternity replacing temporality. This is the Son of God interceding for all of the merely mortal sons and daughters of God who have ever lived. You see, part of the injustice of one human stepping in for another human to pay for their sins is that that person has sins of their own to pay for. That automatically disqualifies them from being in a position to absolve the sins of another. 
Wouldn't that seem self-serving in a way? Well, let's just, let's just eliminate sin, including mine. You see, we're all part perpetrator and a part victim. And how can a part perpetrator pay for some other perpetrator when they were perpetrators too? You see, Jesus isn't just taking the sinner's place one for one. He's taking sin's place, sin itself, the whole tangled mess. If you've ever tried to untangle a ball of string or yarn or the Christmas lights every December, I hate trying to untangle those. Because I'll be working in a knot, just some kind of messy tangle, and I think I've got it. But as I've untangled this part, it's just made the tangle down the line even worse than it was before. It's like I'm moving tangles around, but never quite untangling things. Because I'm working on this. This is me. I've got my own issues. I'm working on my kids or my spouse or my family or my ward, the things that I know. But I don't know all the connections to everything else. These webs of interrelationships, of past experience, of nature and nurture, all of that. I do not have perfect justice, nor perfect mercy, and certainly not perfect judgment to know how to balance those other two. And yet Christ has them all to perfection. He knows the whole strand. And so he can untangle them all without further complicating something else down the line. He's the only one that sees the entire strand for what it is. It's not just a one-for-one replacement. He's not just suffering for your sins, though he is doing that. But he is taking on sin in its entirety, the whole tangled mess. That's why there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement which will suffice for the sins of the world. Someone willing to be pure victim, having never been a perpetrator, to suffer for all sin, having never committed one, answering the ends of the law because he fulfilled it, the whole thing, end to end and beyond. Verse 13, it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice. Then shall there be or it is expedient there should be a stop to the shedding of blood. All that preparatory work has served its purpose. The previews are over. It's time for the main attraction. Then shall the law of Moses be fulfilled. It shall all be fulfilled. Every jot, every tittle, none shall have passed away. And then 14, which in my opinion is the lens through which we should read the entire Old Testament. This is the whole meaning of the law. Every wit, every strange sacrifice, every detailed description of what an offering is supposed to entail, all of it pointing to that great and last sacrifice. And that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. Some of my most cherished memories and experiences in the Old Testament have come when I've read something about the law, some sacrificial rite or act that was confusing but to look at it through the lens of Alma 34:14, and force myself to unpack it until every wit began pointing me to the great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Most of them I haven't figured out every wit yet, but I have come to see Jesus in places I never would have expected him in the law of Moses. And by the way, I think we can and should do the same thing with every performance in the church today. Every ordinance, every element of the temple, every sacred symbol pointing to Jesus and his atonement. 
verse 15, thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name. That's why developing faith and planting this seed is so essential for us all. This being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice and bringeth about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance. I love those phrases. In two weeks, when we see Alma teaching his son Corianton, he will talk about justice and mercy and even personify them with gendered pronouns. You can probably guess which is which. Justice is gendered male and mercy is gendered female. And I even used to do this with my seminary classes. I'd pick the biggest, buffest boy and the smallest, slightest girl and have them come up and ask them to have an arm wrestle in front of the class where both of them had to try as hard as they could. I didn't want either party to take it easy on the other. Well, the class was kind of up in arms. Like, that's not fair. It's not fair. I said, exactly. It isn't fair. But what if I intercede? What if I help one side overpower the other? That's what Jesus does. The intent of his last sacrifice is to bring about the bowels of mercy. Interesting he'd use that phrase, the bowels, the intestines of mercy, the guts. Well, in ancient Israelite culture, that was as important as the heart. I mean, your gut is still a place where we feel things deeply, right? I've got this gut feeling. Well, the, the feeling of mercy down in the guts, the bowels of mercy, that they yearn to help, to come to aid, to succor. And it's those feelings of mercy that overpower this more clinical sense of justice. It's Valjean overpowering Javert. It's the little girl overpowering the big guy because someone else intercedes and helps that overpowering occur. Those are the means that are brought about so that we can all have this beautiful phrase. He repeats it several times. Faith unto repentance. This is the fourth article of faith, right? With each element connected to its neighbors. Remember when they organized the church and they talked about being baptized unto repentance? We are in this cycle now. Well, here it's faith unto repentance. It goes both ways. My beliefs drive my behaviors and my behaviors confirm my beliefs. That's why faith leads to repentance, belief to behavior. But also why baptism leads to the gift of the Holy Ghost, behavior leading to belief, covenant leading to confirmation. You see why repentance can't stand alone? It has to be faith unto repentance. I know I must repent and I know I can repent because I know Jesus. His perfection, coming to know him, is what convinces me that I want to repent. The pedestal is so high, I just want to climb and ascend to be with him. But his mercy looking down is what draws me up, knowing that I'm allowed to. In fact, through him, I'm enabled to. That's his grace. If I have faith in Christ, then I have confidence to repent through Christ. And thus, verse 16, mercy can satisfy the demands of justice. This is why God won't be angry like we assumed him to be back in chapter 33. He can be merciful. Justice is satisfied. Mercy can encircle us in the arms of safety. Oh, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. Those are the arms of safety. For some reason, as a boy, I don't have a lot of memories of my dad sitting next to me in church because he was always up on the stand. 
But those few memories that I do have of him sitting on the pew with us, if I ever got to sit next to him, which we kind of fought over because he usually had Skittles in his suit coat pocket. And so we'd fold our arms and casually reach in and kind of <coughs> cough and get some snacks during sacrament meeting. But in more reverent moments, I remember sitting next to my dad and, there'd be, and leaning forward. I was probably just tired. And I remember him putting his hand on my back. My dad has massive hands. The kind I'd have to kind of pump myself up for before giving him a big handshake. And then I'd just be able to kind of wrap my fingertips and thumb tip around him a little bit. Big hands. And when his hand was on my back, I could feel it. There was just this, I don't know, this comforting weight. And that feeling is what I think of when I ponder being encircled about in the arms of safety. There's just this weight of safety, of security, of protection under the wing of our mother hen. Meanwhile, those that exercise no faith unto repentance. Notice he didn't say, just because they didn't repent. No, you'll never have one without the other. It's they didn't repent because they didn't have faith unto repentance. It's not lack of repentance alone that damns us. It's our lack of faith that makes us believe that repentance is possible to begin with. Those that exercise no faith unto repentance are exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. Would you rather be encircled or exposed? Therefore, only unto him that has faith unto repentance, third time in a row he said that, is brought about the great and eternal plan of redemption. Therefore, so with all of this in mind, may God grant unto you, it's a gift, my brethren, may he grant it unto you, that ye may begin to exercise, there's that same word Alma used, exercising a particle of faith so you can start to believe. Well, how about exercising that faith so that now you repent? It's not faith alone that we're after. It's not just an, an acquiescence or even an acknowledgement of belief. It's a change of behavior. It's becoming like Christ, not just acknowledging that he's real. Exercise your faith unto repentance. Begin to call upon his holy name, that he would have mercy upon you. Those are the means that the atonement has brought about. In fact, back to that thought of the gendered male justice and female mercy, but the woman wins out. Mercy overpowers, such a strong verb. Mercy overpowers justice. Think about the story of David and Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25. When Abigail's husband, Nabal, has acted like the fool his name means him to be, and David is ready to come in and slaughter him until Abigail runs out and intercedes. She is the type of Christ in this story. She is mercy personified, and she's female kneeling before an overpowering and angry David who doesn't shy away from giants, let alone some fool that treated him in the wrong way. What could Abigail possibly do? She herself knows that her husband is guilty. She confesses as much. But three verses worth remembering, three phrases from these verses. First, she says to him, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. So let me take my husband's place. Once the sin has been transferred, she then says, I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid. Picture David saying, but it's not yours. How could I be mad at you? You're not the one that did it. Exactly. How can I be mad at the person? The sin no longer belongs to them. 
Jesus has taken it upon him. It's him now kneeling before me, asking me to forgive him. And how can I withhold forgiveness from the great forgiver? Finally, in 31, then she says, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. So whether my husband deserves this or not, whether you have every reason or no reason to do this, forgive me so that no offense will come upon you, no grief, no regret that you retaliated, deserved or undeserved. I'm trying to save you from the burdens of justice, even when you're the one administering it rather than receiving it. And David acquiesces. His strong arm is overpowered by the meekness of Abigail. Mercy overpowereth justice and brings about means that we can have faith unto repentance all through Jesus Christ. Now back to verse 17 where he says to call upon his holy name. That's all that Zenus was talking about, right? You can pray to God anywhere and everywhere. Well, now Amulek gives his version of that. Verse 18, Yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. Notice, by the way, that the verb is typically cry. It's not just, and pray for mercy. It's cry. That's what babies do. Infants that are totally dependent upon their parent cry unto God for mercy. He's mighty to save. Yea, humble yourselves, continue in prayer unto him. You see the humble prayer, the continuous prayer we saw in Zenus's as well? Cry unto him when ye are in your fields, yea, over all your flocks. Location doesn't matter. Cry unto him in your houses, yea, over all your household. And do it all the time, morning, midday, evening, this constancy in prayer. Yea, cry unto him against the power of your enemies. Yea, cry unto him against the devil, who is an enemy to all righteousness. Cry unto him over the crops of your fields, that ye may prosper in them. I know for you Zoramite poor, this would make a huge difference. Not necessarily that your crops would prosper, but that you would prosper in them. Trust me, I don't want you to become as prideful and materialistic as the people that cast you out. So be careful about praying for prosperity in general. Rather, pray to prosper in whatever you have been given, whatever circumstance you might find yourself in. Prosper within that. That's a safe prosperity. Verse 25, cry over the flocks of your fields that they may increase. And not just increase for you. We'll see that in a second. Verse 26, this is not all. You must pour out your souls in your closets, in your secret places, in your wilderness. Again, who cares about the synagogue you can't go into? You shouldn't want to go there once you know what's happening inside. If you think that's the only place where you can worship God, well, that is one place where God is not being worshipped. Verse 27, when you do cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare, that's the flocks and the crops and the herds and so on, but also for the welfare of those who are around you. That's why you want your flocks to increase. So you have more than enough for yourself. Not so that you can keep spending the excess on yourself, but so that you can then share with those that are in even lesser circumstances than you are. You see, this is so similar to what King Benjamin taught about those who were begging for forgiveness. Well, you better not turn a blind eye to those who are begging you for assistance either. 
and 28, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all. For after ye have done all these things, if you turn away the needy and the naked, and visit not the sick and afflicted, and impart of your substance, if ye have, I know many of you don't, but if you would give, if you did have, again, that's King Benjamin too, I say unto you, if you do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain. Vain as in self-centered, and vain as in unavailing. It availeth you nothing. Ye are as hypocrites who deny the faith. Hypocrisy because you are asking for mercy, but not offering it. Praying for mercy, but not practicing it. This is the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you can have faith in your repentance, can't you have faith in their repentance too? If you can have faith in God's mercy for you, can you extend that mercy to others? 29, if you do not remember to be charitable, ye are as dross. That's what you were feeling before, right? They treated them as dross because of the coarseness of their apparel. Well, let me show you what real dross is. Dross isn't a matter of not having. Dross is a matter of not sharing. Talk about turning the tables. Verse 30, my brethren, I would that after you have received so many witnesses, Almas, Zenuses, Zenix, Moseses, mine, seeing that the Holy Scriptures testify of these things, come forth, bring fruit unto repentance. Speaking of seeds and trees and fruit, fruit unto repentance. Isn't that sweet and white and pure and delicious? 31, yea, I would that ye would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. That needs to change. And it needs to change now. For behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. Notice these are all singular words. You don't have days and times. You have day, today. You have time, right now. This is his turn to reteach what Alma taught back in chapter 12. Your time was prolonged. You were given a day. Use it. Therefore, if you will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. I love this. The gears are turning. Faith is engaging the wheel of repentance, which engages the wheel of baptism, of making covenants, which engages the wheel of confirmation, the power of the Holy Ghost, which in return speeds up velocity, the power of those covenants, which baptism unto repentance keeps us wanting to change and increases and confirms our faith throughout it all. That's the process. That's the plan. And the moment we start moving with it instead of fighting against it is the moment that it begins to work in our behalf. Immediately, the great plan of redemption is brought about unto you. I love that. It's the snatch moment that Alma kept talking about. How quickly the Lord can come with his merciful forgiveness and abundant grace. The moment we stop fighting against the plan, it starts working in our behalf. You can start to feel that swelling, that enlargement, that tasting that delicious fruit the moment we begin. Verse 32, behold, this life, that's all we got, is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day, singular, of this life, singular, is the day, singular, for men to perform their labors. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You don't get tomorrow, right now. Now, as I said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that you do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. Remember, we talked about that. This tension between the Lord prolonging our days, lengthening our time to give us time to repent. 
but also trying to hasten the work and shorten those days because it's only getting harder to do so. So don't procrastinate. It's only making it worse for all of us. For after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life. Notice the verb. We talk about filling time. Worse, we talk about killing time. No, we need to improve time and do it in this life because then cometh the night of darkness wherein there can be no labor performed. 34 and 35 seem to suggest that deathbed repentance doesn't seem to work. You cannot say when you are brought to that awful crisis that I will repent. I don't know if the awful crisis is death or judgment. They both have some similarities. But it's not a matter of repenting right then at that moment. It's like Elder Hale said about his father as he was approaching death. And he asked him if he had anything to repent of. And his father smiled and said, Oh, I've been repenting all along. To be in the habit of repentance, of being baptized unto repentance, and exercising faith unto repentance, that that wheel is always moving. Then we've established our direction and built our momentum. And our continued progress is ensured throughout the eternities. No damnation there. Whereas if we never built up the momentum to begin with, it's almost like this life is meant to establish our trajectory and our velocity. And with that trajectory and velocity, the next life allows it to continue on eternally. But if there is no trajectory and no velocity, and then we just allow it to go, it still doesn't move no matter how much time we give it. If we have chosen that stubbornness, that hardness of heart, that unyielding slothfulness. See, if a sloth won't move, then time's not going to change it. The rest of us, if we're at least moving, if we're exercising particles of faith and exercising faith unto repentance, then that will continue. No need for it ever to come to an end. That's the spirit we've developed. Those are the righteous reflexes that we've developed in ourselves. Trajectory and velocity as opposed to a spirit of stagnation, of damnation. You see, we cannot say that we'll change, that we'll return to God, because we never really said that in this life. Then is not the time to start working on new vocabulary. He says, Nay, ye cannot say this, for that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that ye go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. Is ours a slothful spirit or an anxiously engaged one? Is it the spirit of procrastination or the spirit of faith unto repentance? In a bigger picture, is it the spirit of the Lord that we have grown accustomed to yielding to or the spirit of the devil that has sealed us his? That's what he says in 35. If ye have procrastinated the day of your repentance even until death, behold, ye have become subjected to the spirit of the devil. So it's not just your own lazy spirit primarily. It's the spirit of the devil that he's talking about. And if he seals you his, such that the Spirit of the Lord hath withdrawn from you and hath no place in you. Remember Alma said, give place for a portion of these words? Well, there's no room. It's all been crowded out with weeds and rocks. Nothing's growing here. You can give that patch the rest of eternity and still nothing's going to grow. The devil has all power over you and this is the final state of the wicked. Now again, section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants should give us hope for the spirit world and the opportunity for faith and repentance and covenant making and confirmation of truth to continue there for both those who never knew and those who did. 
Again, reread section 138. The teaching and progression continues on for all, both paradise and prison, it seems. Kind of makes the spirit world this liminal space between this life and eternity. The Book of Mormon doesn't seem to deal with the spirit world much. It's more of the now and then, the ultimate. And so the question is, which side of the line do we associate the spirit world with? If this life is given us to prepare for eternity, does the spirit world count more as this life or count more as eternity? That's kind of the question. Either way, Amulek's point is don't assume that you'll get it done later. Do it now. Change. If you're hesitating, if you're procrastinating, it may be less about your perspective on repentance and more about your faith in Christ and his mercy. You can repent. You can change. God is not angry. You don't have to be afraid of coming unto him. Search the scriptures. Engage in real prayer. Come to know a loving, merciful father because of his son. And with that faith in Christ, how can you not have faith unto repentance? The plan of salvation was made to work for you, not against you. So yield to it. It's that simple. Look and live. And immediately, immediately, it will work in your favor. 36. The reality is that the Lord cannot dwell in unholy temples. He can only dwell in the hearts of the righteous. So become righteous through repentance. It's the righteous that sit down in the kingdom that never have to leave. It's those whose garments are made white through the blood of the Lamb. Made white. They weren't white all along. All have fallen. All were hardened. We all need that help. 37. Now, my beloved brethren, I desire that ye should remember these things and that ye should work out your salvation with fear before God. Not fear of his anger, but fear of offending his mercy. Don't deny the coming of Christ. Denying it for whatever reason. Denying it because you don't think you need it and you've all been elect to be saved because you're better than your brethren, or deny it because you don't want it to happen. You don't want threats of judgment hanging over you. You want to do whatever you want to do. 38, contend no more against the Holy Ghost. Quit fighting him. Just yield. Receive it. Take upon you the name of Christ. Humble yourselves to the dust. Yes, even you poor have more room to descend Worship God in whatsoever place you may be in. Who cares about the synagogue? But do it in spirit and in truth. That's the phrase that Jesus used. How you do it, not so much where. And live in thanksgiving daily. Don't just say thanks. Live in thanksgiving and do it constantly. Thankful for the many mercies and blessings which he doth bestow upon you. I don't stop there. 39. I exhort you, my brethren, that ye be watchful unto prayer continually. That's why you need to be able to do it from place to place to place. Because the adversary can attack you in the synagogue or the field or the house or even the closet. So pray continually that you may not be led away by the temptations of the devil. That he may not overpower you. We'd much rather have mercy overpower justice than the devil overpower a saint. That you may not become his subjects at the last day. For behold, he rewardeth you no good thing. Alma taught that earlier too that we receive our wages of him whom we list to obey. And now, my beloved brethren, I would exhort you to have patience and that ye bear with all manner of afflictions. 
kind of bookending how Alma started this whole discourse. The afflictions that had humbled them. Be patient in them. Bear them. They're doing you more good than harm. Don't revile against those who cast you out because of your exceeding poverty. They did you a favor with that too. It kept you from becoming prideful like them. It kept you from becoming a sinner like them. It kept you from worshiping self under the guise of worshiping God. Instead, verse 41, have patience. Bear with those afflictions with a firm hope that ye shall one day rest from all your afflictions, resting under the shade tree of your own tree of life. Now, when Amulek finished what his companion Alma had started, we see its aftermath in chapter 35. Very brief chapter. In verse 1 and 2, the missionaries go home. Actually, they come to Jershon. I love that. After having spent this time among difficult, less actives, dissenters. Remember, Alma kept praying, please comfort us because we will suffer because of the sins of the people that we'll be working with. So where do they go? Even before they go home, they go hang out in the land of Jershon. Can I just spend some time with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's? Reactivation can be draining because so much of it is willful ignorance and a hardness of heart, a stubbornness against the word, a rejection of things that were taught bountifully to them. So to spend time with recent converts, anti-Nephi-Lehi's who are on fire with the gospel, that's comforting. So they go and they spend time there. Now in verse 3, notice what's happening back among the Zoramites. The more popular part of them, the ones that ascended the holy stand most readily, they consult together concerning the words which were preached. They're angry because of the word, because it destroys their craft. What craft? Well, their priest craft. They're saying that we're not better than everyone else. They're saying our costly apparel is actually worse than their coarse apparel. They're puncturing holes in our prosperity gospel. And that ruins our priestcraft. So they won't hearken unto the words. Go figure. But in verse 4 and 5, they trick the people into divulging where they are on all this. They kind of want to coax out of them their true colors. Well, what do you guys think? I don't know. I'm, I'm undecided. Going forward, they gather everyone together in that area and ask what they think about the words that were spoken. Verse 5, they didn't let them know concerning their desires. They wanted to find out the minds of the people privily. But once they find out in verse 6, knowing who's in favor of the words which were spoken by Alma and who isn't, who's on our side and who's on theirs, those believers are then cast out of the land. That's the bad news. But then the good news. And they were many. I love that. The multitudes of the poor, those in a preparation to receive the word, having begun to exercise a particle of faith, to be reminded of things that they had been taught bountifully before their dissension, many believed. And when they're cast out, where do they go? They go to Jershon too. Newly reactivated members, being strengthened and comforted and ministered to by recent convert members. I think there's something just special about that. I've been a member longer than you have. I should be the one welcoming and ministering to you, but you're the one confirming my newly refound faith. Verse 7, Alma and his brethren minister unto them. But as so often happens, dissension from dissenters is simply not allowed. Again, it gives the lie to their lies. How dare, we already left them. How dare you go back? 
You see, the story of the prodigal son would be hated by anyone who chose to remain in the far country. So in 8, they're angry. They were already angry at the people they cast out. That's why they gave them the boot. But now they're angry at the people of Jershon for accepting them. This is so similar to what we saw earlier when the anti-Nephi-Lehites themselves converted. And the Amulonites and the Amalekites were so angry by this that they riled up all the Lamanites to go fight the anti-Nephi-Lehites. Then to go fight, take it out on the Nephites. That's when they destroyed Ammonihah. Then take it out on new converts that were finally listening to Aaron's words. It's just so interesting. Remember, you don't look inward, so you find a scapegoat wherever you can look. And that's what they decide to do. Verse 8, their leader, a very wicked man, sends over to the people of Ammon, desiring that they should cast out of their land all those that came over from them into their land. They breathed out many threatenings against them. But they picked the wrong group of people to threaten. We don't even care about your swords. We look at death itself with no degree of terror. We're not going to send these newly reactivated members back to the wolves. Are you kidding? The people of Ammon did not fear their words. Therefore, they did not cast them out. They did receive all the poor of the Zoramites that came over unto them. They nourished them. They clothed them. They gave unto them lands for their inheritance. See that? They're doing for them just what the Nephites had done for them when they came into the land. They administered unto them according to their wants. And that made the Zoramites even angrier than ever. Verse 10. And so what do they do? They begin mixing with the Lamanites. They stir them up to anger. Same old, same old. And in 11, they start making preparations for war. War that will define the rest of the book of Alma. This is where we start to see the war chapters unfold. Now, probably reading the writing on the wall, and perhaps at the direction of someone like Ammon, in verse 13, the people of Ammon, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, decided to leave the land of Jershon for good. That had been their first inheritance among the Nephites. The Nephites had protected them at incredible cost to themselves. And so they decide, you know, let's go to a place of perhaps even greater safety. Safety for us and perhaps less of a potential problem for the Nephite armies that are going to protect us. If this is too close to the Lamanites, let's get further away from them. And so they do. They move to Melech, which is where the righteous from Ammonihah had gone when they were cast out, including Zeezrom. And they clear out the land of Jershon so the armies of the Nephites can have a place to contend with the armies of the Lamanites. Like, this seems to be a battleground. Why don't we move? Perhaps our presence here is exacerbating the problem. So let's remove ourselves. After they do, then in verse 14, Alma, Ammon, their brethren, the two sons of Alma, they return to the land of Zarahemla after having been instruments in the hands of God of bringing many of the Zoramites to repentance because they taught them faith in Christ. And that faith led to repentance. As many as were brought to repentance were driven out of their land, but they have lands for their inheritance in the land of Jershon. So that's interesting. The Zoramite converts didn't follow the anti-Nephi-Lehites all the way to Melech. They stayed in Jershon. And that was okay for them because they hadn't made a covenant not to fight. So they actually stayed and took up arms to defend themselves and their wives and children and their lands. So they'll be able to join the Nephite armies in fighting their former comrades among the Zoramites. Verse 15 and 16 then conclude this lesson. Now Alma being grieved for the iniquity of his people. We've seen that a lot from him. Pained, sickened, sorrowful, grieving, because he knows what that iniquity will bring them. He's felt it himself when he was on that side of the Lord's line. 
Grieve for the wars and bloodsheds. Grieve for the contentions which were among them. He'd been to declare the word. He did all that he could. Some listened, some would not. Softened hearts received the word. Hardened hearts rejected it. He'd sent to declare the word among all the people in every city. But he'd seen that the hearts of the people began to wax hard, that they began to be offended because of the strictness of the word. That irony. We've been teaching mercy the whole time. You still only hear the strictness of the word? You really want the easy universalism of the order of the Nehors? No wonder they seem to be popular for the rest of the Book of Mormon. It's so easy on the ears. No matter how much we preach mercy, the fact that we don't uncouple it from its contrary, justice, that's still too scary for you. It's still too strict. You want mercy uncoupled from justice. And that mercy is no longer merciful. It's enabling. It's excusing. It's rationalizing. It's justifying. It's damning. That's not merciful. Because we refuse to allow the jack-in-the-box to be stuffed down into its box. But every time we try to fill that gap, not with guilt, but with grace, knowing that you can change. We're teaching faith unto repentance. But all you hear is an angry God. That's a God of your invention. All you see is an arm of anger instead of an arm of safety. All you feel is fear instead of faith. Strictness of the word? Strict only if you refuse to hear the mercy that surrounds it. We have to hear them both. This is a harmony. What a tragedy that you only hear one tune. No wonder his heart is exceedingly sorrowful. So what does he do? This is interesting. And this will lead into next week's chapters. Therefore he caused that his sons should be gathered together, that he might give unto them every one his charge, separately, concerning the things pertaining unto righteousness. That is the account, according to his own record, that we will study for the next two weeks. And those are amazing conversations between father and sons. I love that Alma does this. He's tried everything and gone everywhere, and he still sees hardened hearts. So does he throw in the towel? Think these people are just beyond saving? No, he continues to teach, but where does he focus his next efforts? At home, where it's going to matter most. I'm grateful for all the preaching from the pulpit that we receive in the church. But I'm most grateful for the instruction I received at home from parents who knew. And for all the teaching I get to do, I have five students that I've taught more lessons to than anyone else. I hope they're learning them. The more I can build their faith, the less chance there will be that someone else has to go out and reclaim them later. I know it's not all up to me. There is nature as well as nurture. There is personal choice as well as parenting. There is agency. But I do pray that they know that they'll exercise a particle of faith, that they've come to trust a God who is merciful toward them. Brothers and sisters, today's the day. This is the day and this is the time to prepare to prepare ourselves, to prepare our families, to prepare the world, so that when the Son of Man returns, he will find faith 
upon the earth and not just little seeds but a forest of trees of life tended by gardeners who have grown up to be like him.